and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Cooper Benson from Tulane University talking about urinary diversion. So just some objectives today about urinary diversion. We'll talk a little bit about the historical perspectives uh, some anatomic and functional considerations and techniques, metabolic consequences, uh, types of urinary diversion, techniques, complications, and outcomes, um, as well as long-term complications and follow-up. So uh, we'll start with Slido. Uh, if you guys all have a smartphone, you can use your camera uh, to do the QR code here. And just the first question, just to see where everyone's tuning in from. Um, so you can join here and just free type response. It's my first time using Slido. So cool, Philly. I'll give everyone a couple of minutes to respond. I just have a couple of uh, baseline questions uh, and then we'll kind of get into the meat of the presentation. All right, looks like uh, New Orleans is winning. Oh, and also uh, just to, uh, I'll answer all the questions at the end. Uh, so just use the Q&A uh, button and I'll get to all the questions um, toward the end of the presentation. So just save them up there and then I'll address as many as I can get through with the, the time limitation. All right, let's go to the uh, next question here. So this is just, uh, what, what PGY year are you? Uh, those members of the audience, just gonna see who's tuning in. All right. Lots of PGY3s, it looks like. All right. All right, good. Um, all right, and then the other question is uh, just out of sheer curiosity. Uh, what is your institution doing in terms of uh, pre-op uh, COVID testing? Um, I thought I'd pull the audience while I had a big group. Um. All right. 
antibody test and double testing. Okay, and then one uh, one last introductory question. Um, just in terms of uh, urinary diversions performed at in your institution, how may, uh, how are they majority uh, uh, performed there? Can you guys, uh, is it working? I don't see any responses yet, sorry. Is it not working? Oh, there we go. Someone responded. All right. Majority open, it looks like. Okay. Uh, so I'll just move on uh, here. So we'll go back to the uh, PowerPoint. So, so let's start with a little historical perspective uh, in terms of uh, urinary uh, diversions. Um, so, uh, obviously, urinary diversions are not new. Uh, these have been performed since the 1850s. Um, Sir John Simon in London uh, performed really what was uh, the first uh, urinary diversion doing a ureteral proctostomy. And this is a picture of how he performed it, basically tying the ureter to the rectum and creating and puncturing through the rectum to create a fistula between the ureters and the rectum to, and relying on the external anal sphincter to be the continence mechanism. Um, and then Thomas Smith in London uh, was the first to do a actual ureterointestinal anastomosis um, in, the, in 1879. And there's been many modifications that we'll kind of go over. Down here is a picture of all the different uh, types of uh, ureterointestinal anastomoses, and we'll go over some of these. As I said, a majority of the first uh, urinary diversions were all rectal or rectosigmoid pouches in a variety of constructs and reliant on the anal sphincter for continence. However, the risks of doing this are metabolic disturbances and malignancy. So, um, and what led to the creation of external stomas was really the development of a, a useful stoma device that wasn't cumbersome. This is a, one of the original stoma devices um, that was performed. It was very cumbersome and hard um, and very difficult for patients to use. Um, and so it wasn't really until the creation of a, a urostomy device uh, that you could really manage urine uh, from a stoma. Um, so in 1934, uh, Henry Koenig invented this appliance, which you can see the patent for here, um, using thin rubber sheets and an adapter to prevent uh, escape of fluid. Um, and then Her uh, Herman Rutzen was the one who actually manufactured these. 
Um, so, so this eased the ability to manage abdominal stomas uh, with uh, urine. Eugene Bricker uh, was a general surgeon in St. Louis uh, who popularized and first described the ileal conduit um, and described these in patients undergoing pelvic exoneration for a variety of pelvic malignancies. And it wasn't until really the ruts and bag um, that they could manage these incontinent stomas easily. So now let's go back uh, to today. Um, so a urinary diversion, as you all know, is a surgical rerouting of urine to exit the body other than the native bladder and or the urethra. These can be incontinent or continent, and we'll kind of go through each of these. So there's a variety of indications for urinary diversion. Uh, oncologic with uh, bladder cancer, genital urinary malignancies, occasionally other pelvic malignancies like colon cancer, uh, rectal cancer, gynecologic uh, malignancies. Um, also patients uh, with neurogenic bladder or end-stage bladders as a result of uh, neurogenic causes, radiation cystitis, idiopathic uh, end-stage bladders or interstitial cystitis, chronic pelvic pain, uh, congenital anomalies. Uh, uh, you may consider doing urinary diversions in patients with hostile bladders uh, um, prior to renal transplant um, and also in cases of a devastated uh, outlet. Um, that are completely obstructed are patients who are floridly incontinent with or without fistulae, um, and you would consider urinary diversion in these patients. So first, let's talk a little bit about surgical anatomy. Um, so started at the stomach. Um, while this is rarely used today, this is testable um, and may show up on your written boards or your in-service exams. So the, the stomach can be used as an incontinent or a continent diversion and can also be used as a cystoplasty. Uh, for bladder augmentation. The arterial anatomy comes from the celiac artery, which branches into the left gastric, splenic, and hepatic arteries. Um, occasionally, the left gastroepiploic will be atretic, um, and the right gastroepiploic tends to be more reliable. Um, when this is used, they utilize the antrum or a wedge of the gastric body, um, and this is based typically on the right gastroepiploic uh, artery. Um, and this is actually a really long pedicle that can reach all the way down into the pelvis. Um, if the stomach is used um, and you, you use the antrum completely, then a Billroth um, one reconstruction where the stomach to do a denum anastomosis is performed. Typically, you keep the omentum attached to the stomach, but it has to be disconnected from the colon uh, when, when using the stomach uh, in this setting. Small bowel is the most common. Uh, the small bowel in total length is somewhere between 50 and 30 feet, uh, depending on the patient. Uh, as you know, divided into three uh, sections. The duodenum is the largest in diameter and is essentially never used in uh, urinary diversions. The jejunum makes up 40% of the small bowel uh, supplied by the superior mesenteric artery and veins. And the arterial arcades are typically single and they're much larger vessels and tend to have a thinner mesentery compared to the ileum. Um, and very rarely used, and we'll go over some of the reasons why. Uh, the ileum uh, represents a majority of the small bowel, around 60%. Again, same blood supply. Um, and this is the most distal part of the small bowel. It has multiple arterial arcades and small vessels relative to the jejunum. and tends to have a thicker mesentery. At the terminal ileum, you can see in this picture is this ileal sequel fold or the ligament of Treves. This is Sir Frederick Treves, who was a, uh, a surgeon in London. He was actually, uh, he helped take care of the elephant man. And he uh, popularized uh, uh, appendiceal surgery and described this ileocecal fold and is the, really the only area of the small bowel that has anti-mesenteric fat. So if you're confused, 
in the belly with lots of adhesions. If you find if they still have an appendix, uh, the, um, or still have the ileocecal valve, you should find this ileocecal fold here um, to help you identify your anatomy. So the small bowel, experimentally, up to uh, 15 centimeters of jejunum or ileum can survive um, uh, just lateral, uh, lateral to a single straight vessel off of an arcade, but you obviously don't want to assume this. Uh, clinically, up to eight centimeters may survive on a single straight vessel. Um, and this will become important when you're doing a Turnbull or loop type stomas, and I'll show you uh, some of that in a little bit. Uh, there, importantly, there's two parts of the small bowel that may lie within the pelvis, which has implications in patients who have whole pelvic radiation. Uh, the last two inches of the terminal ilium um, may be exposed to pelvic radiation, as well as fi the five, uh, about five feet away uh, from the ligament of trites uh, has a long mesentery and may also be exposed uh, as well to pelvic uh, radiation. So the colon anatomy, um, you know, as everyone very well knows from medical school, um, the uh, cecum in the right colon is supplied by the SMA um, via the ileocolic artery and the right colic and the middle colic. The middle colic uh, may have a variable course and branching, um, typically occurs close to the, closer to the hepatic flexure than really in the middle of the transverse colon. Uh, the ileocecal uh, junction is fixed in the right lower quadrant by two peritoneal bands. The transverse colon is supplied by the middle colic uh, artery as well as collateral supply from the marginal artery of Drummond, which is here. You can see my pointer. Um, and then the left colon uh, is in, is, or descending colon is supplied from the inferior mesenteric artery um, via the left colic in sigmoid and hemorrhoidal or superior rectal uh, branches. The middle rectal comes from the internal iliac. Um, so importantly, there's two watershed points um, that may be uh, important clinically when doing urinary diversion work. Griffith's point is in the splenic flexure at the junction between the middle colic and the left colic. Um, and then also Sudex point, which is at the junction between the superior rectal uh, artery and the sigmoid artery, which may, uh, which are, uh, you know, with hypotension or you know, extreme blood loss, uh, may become a, may create ischemia in these areas. So, in terms of uh, urinary diversion, how do you decide which diversion is right for the patient? Uh, there's lots of things you have to consider. Uh, you have to consider, uh, you know, the patient's anatomy, what prior surgeries uh, the patient has had, what is the you know the surgeon who's performing the surgery, what is their preference, what's their experience and training. What are the patient's preferences, social circumstances? What's their expectations and impact on their quality of life? Um, what's the patient's risk tolerance uh, for complications, morbidity, and also, you know, what, uh, what is their ability to take care of a urinary diversion in terms of catheterization and irrigation? Uh, what, what are their medical comorbidities? Have they had prior bowel resections, prior radiation? Also, you want to evaluate their body habitus, surgical scars. Are they up to date on their colonoscopies? And what's and also consider overall performance status, their frailty, what's their manual dexterity, as well as oncologic factors, which we'll go into, which may uh, play a role in, in decision making for urinary diversion. So uh, for the stomach, uh, you, may, you, know, you may consider using a uh, gastric uh, segment in patients who have chronic kidney disease who may be unable to tolerate metabolic acidosis uh, that we see with ileal and uh, colon urinary diversions. 
uh, patients who have uh, multiple bowel resections and you're concerned about short gut, uh, you may use the stomach um, to avoid uh, some of these complications. Um, often the stomach is you know, sequestered um, and is less involved with adhesions from prior surgery and may be more accessible and easy. Uh, also typically produces less mucus, uh, less bacteria relative to ileum and colon, um, and but can be associated with dumping syndrome, steatorrhea, and bilious vomiting. Uh, jejunum, like I said, is essentially never used, and we'll, we'll go over some of the reasons why. And then ileum and colon, the ileum is very mobile, small in diameter, has good blood supply. Um, however, the mobility may be impaired with excessive fat and short, uh, short mesentery. And similarly, the colon is also mobile, a larger diameter, um, and is less likely to be exposed in radiated fields. Um, you know, outside of the pelvis, the colon, you know, the left transverse and uh, ascending colon. So the metabolic complications, um, these are highly testable. This will show up for sure on your in-service exams as well as your written boards and potentially even your oral boards. So we'll kind of go through each of these. Um, so with the stomach, uh, tends to be less permeable to urinary solutes and as a net excretion of chloride and, and uh, hydrogen ions and results in a hypochloremic, hypokalemic alkalosis. Uh, it can be uh, exacerbated and severe if there's uh, dehydration, nasotemia, which results in an increased aldosterone and, and, and further impairs bicarbonate uh, excretion. Uh, these patients may present with lethargy, seizures, respiratory failure, arrhythmias. The treatment for this uh, in stable patients is uh, histamine blockers um, or uh, proton pump inhibitors. If there's a life-threatening alkalosis, um, arginine hydrochloride infusion uh, can help restore the acid-base balance. Uh, one of the complications we see with stomach is hematuria dysuria syndrome uh, can occur in up to 24%. This is a result of the acid. Um, this can, uh, patients may have bladder spasms, pain, sick, you know, hematuria, and may excoriate their skin. Um, and this can be treated as well with histamine blockers. Experimentally in dogs, when uh, using the antrum, can actually lead to increased serum gastrin levels, which can result in intestinal ulcers uh, elsewhere um, in, the, uh, in the GI tract. So uh, you can treat these similarly with histamine antagonists or proton pump inhibitors. The jejunum, like I said, practically speaking, is not used. Um, a loss of a significant proportion of the jejunum results in malabsorption of nutrients, fat, calcium, folic acid. Um, the electrolyte profile in these patients is a hyponatremic, hypochloremic, and hyperkalemic metabolic acidosis. And this can be worsened and, and more evident if you use the proximal jejunum in patients who are on TPM. In the jejunum, there's an increased secretion of uh, sodium chloride and water, um, and the jejunum uh, is able to reabsorb potassium and hydrogen ions. So in the dehydrated state uh, and stimulation of the renin-angiotensin system, um, the kidneys reabsorb sodium and uh, lose potassium, and this potassium is then reabsorbed by the jejunum, and the jejunum further loses that sodium. Uh, resulting in this electrolyte abnormality. These patients uh, similarly will have uh, lethargy, nausea, vomiting, severe dehydration, and weakness. The treatment is fluids uh, and bicarb. Uh, Long-term, uh, you can use uh, salt tabs or thiazides uh, have been used to manage the hyperkalemia. And if persistent, you may have to remove the jejunal segment if, the, if one was used. Um, but I've never seen that. Um, the ileum and the col colon are the most common. 
of course, uh, you see a hyperchloremic, hypokalemic metabolic acidosis, and the incidence of this is around 25% in patients with urinary diversion. Uh, obviously more common in patients with continent diversions uh, relative to incontinent uh, diversions. Patients may be anorexic, they have weight loss, polydipsia, lethargy, and uh, this uh, profile is a result of ammonium chloride absorption. Uh, to treat these patients, you may use an alkalizing agent, uh, sodium bicarb, potassium citrate, um, or it can block chloride transport. Um, and can use chlorpromazine or nicotinic acid, uh, which inhibit uh, C cyclic AMP and reduce the chloride transport um, to reduce the uh, help uh, reduce the acidosis or treat the acidosis. Uh, you want to avoid nicotinic acid in patients with a peptic ulcer disease as well as liver dysfunction. Um, with ileum and colon, there's uh, with colon um, more commonly there's a total body loss of potassium. Uh, this is most common with ureter or SIGs. Um, the ileum allows for some reabsorption of potassium, but colonic diversions cannot absorb potassium and therefore more likely to have a total body uh, deficit. Um, if the patient is acidotic and hypokalemic, you have to correct both. If you just correct the acidosis, it may potentiate uh, hypokalemia. Um, also, urea and creatinine uh, recognized can be reabsorbed by the bowel um, and may be a less reliable marker of uh, renal function. In terms of other consequences, uh, patients may have altered sensorium as a result of magnesium deficiency with uh, renal magnesium wasting or nutritional de uh, depletions. Uh, hyperammonemia, uh, you may see in patients with uh, hepatic dysfunction or cirrhosis and can result in a, a ammoniogenic coma. Uh, the treatment for this is to drain the diversion uh, with a catheter, reduce the contact time uh, with the urine and the bowel. Um, can use oral neomycin, arginine glutamate, for severe cases or lactulose. Um, also recognize that the bowel can reabsorb uh, phenytoin and methotrexate, so you may need to adjust these medications and adjust the dosing of these medications in patients with uh, urinary diversions. Uh, vitamin B12 malabsorption uh, associated with loss of the ileum. Um, this results in a megaloblastic anemia and neur neurologic abnormalities. This may take three to five years for it to present um, as the store, B12 stores in the liver, uh, you know, may take a while to deplete them. Um, so uh, you can replace vitamin B12 uh, with injection or with a nasal spray. Um, oftentimes people just treat them after about five years, um, regardless, and, and not necessarily check B12 levels. Um, additionally, bowel resection, uh, especially the terminal ilia, may uh, result in a malabsorption of bile salts. Um, these bile salts uh, can cause mucosal irritation and diarrhea um, and also results in the lipids not being absorbed. Cholestyramine can be used to sequester these bile acids and help reduce the diarrhea in patients um, with uh, chronic diarrhea after urinary diversions. Um, and that can also be the bile acids because of the loss of the ileum as well as loss of the ileocecal valve, there's bile acids. Um, and the fatty acids uh, in the colon result in this diarrhea. Um, also, uh, with the loss of the ileocecal valve, there may be reflux of colonic bacteria into the ileum and have small intestinal overgrowth, um, may have deficiencies in uh, um, fat-soluble uh, vitamins, uh, vitamin A, D, E, and K. Um, also, loss of the ileocecal valve changes the transit time. You know, the ileocecal valve acts as a pause in the GI tract. 
Um, it allows for absorption of nutrients. So with decreased, uh, you know, with a, tra a faster transit time, um, you may be have uh, you may have impaired absorption of nutrients. Um, you want to uh, try to avoid resecting the ileocecal valve or using the ileocecal valve in your urinary diversion in patients with myelomeningocele, as this may exacerbate diarrhea in fast transit uh, for patients uh, with spina bifida. So uh, now to move on toward the types of urinary diversions. Um, so pre-op, you know, counseling, you know, it's important to discuss all the options with the patients. Uh, in terms of all the all the variety of urinary diversions that are available, uh, discuss intraoperative scenarios that may alter your preoperative plan, like margin status if you're doing this with bladder cancer. Um, a bowel prep uh, with uh, ERAS protocols is largely omitted uh, when using small bowel. Um, the different types of uh, bowel preps uh, can be mechanical. Uh, either a lavage, which is, uh, you know, go lightly or new lightly, uh, or uh, Miralax, and these are uh, PEG electrolytes, and these are the safest in patients who have renal dysfunction underlying. You don't want to use uh, cathartic types, which are magnesium citrate or sodium phosphate, which may result in more metabolic and electrolyte disturbances. Um, uh, antibiotic, um, prophylactic, antibiotic uh, bowel prep, um, typically we will use in patients with colon diversions. Uh, there's evidence that reduced surgical site infections and reduced uh, uh, C. diff uh, infections. Um, so we will use both mechanical and, and an antibiotic prep um, for colon uh, urinary diversions. Um, for ERAS protocols, there's a variety of protocols. Every center kind of has its own uh, has its own way of doing uh, enhanced recovery. Uh, and this, remember, encompasses both preoperative factors, intraoperative management, as well as postoperative pathways. Uh, this has best been studied in radical cystectomy uh, for bladder cancer, uh, but it's been applied in other areas of uh, urologic surgery. Uh, the goals of ERAS protocols, uh, you know, hasten recovery, have early return of bowel function, uh, prevent malnutrition and deconditioning, uh, reduce opioid use, and uh, you know, shorten length of stay in the hospital, and then potentially even improve quality of life of patients uh, perioperatively. So uh, like I said, whichever diversion you're, you know, you're, plan, uh, you're planning to use, you, know, you may need a backup plan. We'll kind of go over uh, reasons. So before we move on to the uh, urinary diversion types, um, just talk a little bit about principles of bowel work. Uh, you know, it's important to have adequate bowel mobilization. Um, you want exposure of the bowel cirrhosis and clean off the mesentery when doing your bowel anastomosis. You want to ensure you're using a healthy segment of bowel, um, you know, maintain the blood supply, avoid tension, um, and ensure that your mesenteric incisions are not too deep and you're not, uh, you know, shortening the mesentery and, and altering the blood supply. Um, you know, with a robotic diversions, uh, endocytin green can be used to help show you what's healthy and what's not. Um, or you can use a handheld Doppler if there's any concern. Um, it's important to get hemostasis at the staple line. Uh, you can use pinpoint electrocautery there safely. Um, during the bowel work, you want to prevent spillage of the enteric contents. So typically we'll towel off the abdomen uh, to prevent spillage. Um, you want cirrhosis to cirrhosa apposition. Um, it's important not to strangulate, you know, with your sutures, with your limbic sutures, you're just more, uh, it's an apposition. Um, um, and then you want to ensure that um, 
that the mesenteries align normally and that you have proper alignment of the anti-mesenteric to anti-mesenteric sides of the uh, bowel. And remember water under the bridge, meaning that the, the diversion segment that you're using goes below and that the anastomosis to, to um, uh, bring the GI tract back in continuity typically is above. Um, so there's different types of intestinal anastomosis, hand-sewn or stapled, um, and they have similar outcomes with multiple randomized trials. Um, you know, most commonly stapled, I, I can count, you know, I think I've done a hand-sewn anastomosis twice, um, you know, in training. So, you know, we, we don't get the same. Uh, so I don't have a ton of experience doing a hand-sewn. Most commonly, and, and the, most people do a stapled anastomosis. Uh, for a side-to-side -side functional end-to-end -end anastomosis, which is most common, typically we use a GIA 75 with a blue load times two or three, and then a TA 60. Um, put sutures at the crotch here uh, to prevent tension at the staple line and then limber it over at the end, um, which is dealer's choice. You know, obviously the bowel work tends to be what, what results in majority of the complications with urinary diversion and with cystectomy. Um, intestinal leaks, um, you know, are not common, um, you know, may occur, you know, occur around day 12, but I've seen them as early as day four or five. Um, the risks for anastomotic leak of your uh, intestinal anastomosis is ischemia, microvascular disease, infection, uh, radiated bowel, technical errors, and staple misfires. Hemorrhage as a result of bowel work is rare. Ileus and bowel obstruction tend to be more common with ileum than with colon. Um, you can also have stenosis or obstruction at your anastomosis as a result of edema or technical errors. Uh, you may have fistulas. Um, unrecognized bowel injuries typically present earlier if you missed a bowel injury uh, that you left behind. Uh, pseudo obstruction or Ogilvy syndrome. Um, However, these complications, uh, you know, may result in the risk of reoperation um, and, and do have some risk of death, uh, especially the in intestinal anastomotic leaks. Um, so in terms of the anastomosis for your reuroenteric um, anastomoses, uh, you want to minim minimize mobilization of the ureter and use only what's needed for attention-free anastomosis. Keep the adventitia intact. You want to use fine absorbable sutures and a watertight anastomosis, and you want to bring the bowel to the ureter rather than stretching the ureter to the bowel. This can be done in a running or an interrupted anastomosis with 405 uh, absorbable suture. Uh, you want to minimize touching or grasping the ureter. Uh, you can use a stay suture on the ureter to help you move and manipulate the ureter rather than grabbing it with your pickups. Um, and test the anastomosis uh, before leaving the OR. Uh, over so any little leaks, and then you, you can retroperitonealize your anastomosis. Um, obviously, stent, um, stent your anastomosis, place a drain, and with conduits, you may or may not leave a red rubber stomal catheter as well. So these are just some examples of uh, types of ureoenteric anastomoses. Uh, most common is the Bricker um, uh, anastomosis, which is a refluxing type anastomosis. We tend to not perform uh, anti-refluxing type um, anastomoses in the modern day, but many have been described. And then the other uh, uh, common anastomosis type is a Wallace, where you sew the two ureters together and put them to the butt end of the conduit, uh, which tends to have the lowest rate of stricture. Uh, things we worry about in terms of complications, um, upper tract deterioration, this can be a result of lack of ureteral motility, UTI, or stones, um, and this can occur long term.
um, leak rates are around three to five percent, and these usually occur early after uh, urinary diversions. Acute pyelonephritis can occur early and as well as uh, late into survivorship, um, and it can be associated with stricture development. Um, Long-term uh, renal dysfunction uh, can occur around 18% with conduits and 15% with colon conduits uh, with anti-reflux um, in those patients who had normal kidneys preoperatively. Um, that then deteriorated rather than patients who had CKD at the time of urinary diversion. So lo looking at the stricture rates um, after uh, urinary anastomosis, uh, these can be caused by tension or ischemia at urinastomosis, a leak, uh, urinary tract infection or pilo, uh, patients who have had radiation or trauma. These can occur late, so it's important to monitor patients well into survivorship. These can occur, you know, eight, 10 years after urinary diversion. Um, these also can be non-anastomotic, uh, which is most common on the left side because you had to mobilize the left to bring it across the sigmoid mesentery um, to do your anastomosis. Um, these are uh, strictures are more common with non-refluxing anastomoses compared to refluxing. The average rate for Brickers are around 6% with the Leduc, Pagano, and Ledbetter-Clark. These are all non-refluxing anastomoses and uh, highest risk with the Leduc. Uh, the Wallace, as I said, has the lowest risk, um, and uh, these can be running, you know, having a running or interrupted anastomosis, you know, unclear whether or not uh, it, uh, relates to future stricture development. Houtman uh, looked at his series of ileal neobladders and found that stricture rates were higher with preoperative hydronephrosis. Uh, with 20% uh, risk of stricture, whereas those without preoperative the stricture rate was 7.5%. There's some evidence that uh, robotic uh, surgery may, have, may be associated with increased risk of uh, ureteral stricture development. Um, this was a SEER study published recently um, showing that, again, pre-op hydro was a risk factor as well as doing a robotic uh, diversion. But this didn't differentiate extracorporeal versus intracorporeal. Um, also looking, uh, another study also similarly found that robotic uh, cystectomies with uh, urinary intracorporeal urinary diversions had higher rates of ureteral stricture development. Uh, often, uh, now we can use ICG, which may help uh, better assess the vascularity and the health of the ureter. Um, and ICG was, uh, using ICG was associated with uh, uh, resecting more ureter than you would have otherwise. And this was associated with no ureteral stricture developments when, you, when ICG was used in the study versus 6.6% per ureter or 10.6% per patient in patients uh, where ICG was not used. In terms of management, it's kind of beyond the scope of this lecture, but uh, endoscopic management, uh, you know, tends to not be, uh, provide long-term durable results. You can try a balloon or a laser or sharply incise, but typically the highest success rates are with open revision. Um, there's worse success if you're shorter time from surgery or if you have a longer stricture. So just to go over the different uh, urinary diversion uh, types, um, so incontinent, in terms of incontinent urinary diversions, the simplest being a cutaneous ureterostomy. This avoids the need for bowel anastomosis in the bowel work. And uh, University of South Florida uh, published their experience with uh, 310 cutaneous ureterostomies. 
they manage these uh, differently during their series. Some uh, early on, they left stents only for three months or really perioperatively and found higher stricture rates. Uh, whereas when they left the, uh, the stents in for longer, they found that the stricture rates uh, were less and less likely needed uh, revisions or chronic stenting. Um, ileal conduit is the most common uh, incontinent urinary diversion. Uh, you may want to consider an alternate segment in patients with pelvic radiation. Uh, those who have inflammatory bowel disease involving the small bowel or those who already have had prior bowel resections and short bowel. Um, you know, preoperatively important to mark the stoma site, get with your ostomy nurse. Uh, you want to uh, choose a site in the right lower quadrant, um, you know, over the body of the rectus. Uh, typically, we use a 10 to 15 centimeter segment of ileum, about uh, 15 centimeters or so from the ileocecal valve. Uh, you want this isoperistaltic, meaning the distal side goes to the stoma and the proximal side of the bowel becomes the butt end. Um, uh, as I said, you know, typically doing a refluxing uh, spatulated into side anastomosis or a Wallace are most common. Um, and you want to mature the stoma through the right lower quadrant, uh, through the body of the rectus um, with a two-finger hiatus. You want a perpendicular track between the peritoneum and the skin, and you want to avoid a diagonal course, ensuring that the mesentery remains medial and is not twisted, and doing a, a rosebud-type stoma. So talking about stomas, you want a protruding rosebud or brook type stoma. Um, this enables placement of an ostomy appliance and prevents the skin from getting macerated uh, and chronically inflamed. Uh, like I said, you want to bring it through the body of the rectus muscle. Um, you want to avoid skin creases, uh, you know, avoid the belt line. Uh, you can or cannot, uh, you know, fascial fix uh, the uh, conduit uh, with the cruciate incision of the anterior fascia. Uh, doesn't seem to make a difference in terms of stoma rates. A Turnbull stoma, um, you know, may be used in obese patients with short, thick mesenteries. There's high rates of peristomal hernia, but less risk of stenosis. Uh, requires a larger segment of skin to be removed, and you bring up the uh, distal blind end cephalad, and um, this is where you can incise the mesentery a couple centimeters away from the bowel. You can see my pointer here. You want to remove some of this mesentery so that the mesentery continues to be straight um, and this piece of bowel will actually survive. Um, you want to put a red rubber underneath, which is here, or some sort of, uh, some sort of device to uh, keep the loop up and only keep that in for seven days. Um, and then open the bowel transversely. The uh, blind end can be anastomosed flush to the skin, whereas the, uh, the actual end of the conduit needs to be rosebud as well to enable bagging. Colon conduits, uh, you, you know, want to avoid these, avoid these in, uh, with patients with ulcerative colitis, uh, chronic diarrhea. Um, if they have small bowel-only Crohn's disease, you can use the transverse colon. The transverse colon um, can be used, uh, you know, is, is a nice thing to have available in patients who have had prior pelvic radiation or have really short ureters. You can actually anastomose the transverse colon right to the renal pelvis. Um, and uh, can do a side-to-side -side stapled anastomosis or end-to-end -end, uh, similar to the uh, ileal conduit. And it can be placed in any orientation. It can be isoperistaltic or antiperistaltic. Most commonly it's placed in the right upper quadrant. Um, the sigmoid colon can also be used. Um, this may be a good choice in, uh, in patients undergoing pelvic exoneration um, and can be placed on the right or the left um, and avoids the need for a bowel anastomosis. 
So it's a nice option uh, to have. Or it can also use an ileal cecal conduit. Um, the ileal part of that can be used to anastomose the ureters and creates an anti-reflux uh, mechanism um, for the uh, ureteral anastomosis. So I'm gonna skip the quiz just in the interest of time. Uh, so uh, the complications of ileal conduit, um, you know, bowel leak, one to two percent, wound infection, dehiscence, ileus, uh, GI bleeds, um, urine leak around two percent, renal failure. As you can see, the complication rates overall are around sixty percent. Um, so these are not benign surgeries. Uh, some of the complications long term uh, tend to be mostly related to the stoma. Um, and these are long-term issues uh, for patients. The, the stoma can retract if there's tension on the conduit or stomal separation, especially in obese patients. Uh, you can get conduit necrosis. Uh, if early on, if you're worried about the health of the stoma, you can use a test tube and put it in the stoma. And you, it allows you to see proximal uh, to the skin level to make sure that the entire conduit isn't ischemic. Um, Peristomal hernias are probably more common than we appreciate. Uh, many of these are asymptomatic, but about a third seek repair due to issues with pouching or, or bowel obstruction. Um, it's more common, like I said, with a loop. Uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering is actually doing a uh, trial using prophylactic mesh to prevent these. Um, stomal stenosis is, uh, can be a result of chronic infection uh, and vascular insufficiency or scarring at the skin level. Um, and uh, we see this in a 20 to 24% in ileal conduit and 10 to 20% in colon conduits, but it's less common with loop uh, ostomies. Um, there's been less rates of this reported as a result of better fitting uh, ostomy appliances and better attention to stomal care. Uh, conduit prolapse and, and peristomal skin uh, irritation and ulceration can also be problematic for patients. So these are just a couple of pictures showing stoma stenosis of uh, the conduit. Um, in this picture up here is a patient that I saw during fellowship with a necrotic, uh, necrotic conduit. So moving on to continent diversions, um, over time there's uh, been decreasing uh, use of continent diversions, which you can see here. Um, however, this is uh, center dependent. You know, some centers, uh, you know, may uh, say that they do about seventy percent of their diversions are continent uh, diversions. Um, but overall, um, probably less commonly utilized uh, across the board than uh, ileal conduits, which tend to be the most common. Um, so again, I'll skip over the question um, just to get through more of this. So in terms of selecting patients for, uh, you know, continent urinary diversions, you know, oncologic factors to consider um, if there's a positive urethral margin at the prostate in the men or the bladder neck in female, you don't want to do a orthotopic neobladder. However, there's some evidence that orthotopic neobladders may be associated with lower risk of uh, urethral recurrence. Uh, it's important that they have relatively normal renal function. If they have a GFR less than 35 to 40, uh, you probably don't want to use a uh, continent diversion. Um, patients uh, need to have normal liver function, no uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Patients who've had prior bowel resections, you want to, you know, may need to make an intraoperative assessment whether or not you're able to, to uh, use a sufficient amount of uh, small bowel um, or colon uh, to use for uh, diversion. You also want to avoid devascularizing bowel and you may need to take down an old anastomosis. Um, 
you know, if it's close by your segment that you're gonna use. If you're using, a, uh, if you're using the colon in your diversion, they need a recent normal colonoscopy. Also consider mental and physical factors. Are they active? Do they have good dexterity? And are they willing to take care of the, the continent diversion? Uh, patients who are concerned about cosmesis or having a, a bag, um, you know, you may consider this as well. Uh, patients with urethral stricture disease or poor external sphincter function, you may want to avoid using a continent diversion. As patients with radiation, um, you may selectively do an orthotopic diversion in these patients. Um, but a uh, continent catheterizable channel is certainly reasonable in patients with that radiation, assuming that they meet the other criteria. Um, so in terms of orthotopic diversions, um, you know, uh, they need to be uh, have excellent compliance uh, and they need to maintain a low pressure, um, store adequate volumes, and most of these patients void by uh, Valsalva. Um, in females, uh, you want to preserve the urethra and keep the endopelvics intact. Um, nerve sparing uh, may be beneficial uh, in terms of reducing uh, hypercontinence and also may consider sacrocopalpexy, which may aid as well in supporting the neobladder and preventing kinking or hypercontinence, uh, as well as putting omentum between the neobladder and the vaginal closure to prevent a fistula. Um, so different types of orthotopic diversions, I'll just go through this quick and I'll let you guys read some of this on your own. Uh, in the interest of time, but the Houtman neobladder uses 60 centimeter tibilium in a W configuration here, as you can see. Um, the Studer is the other mo most common uh, orthotopic diversion. Um, a similar principle, but smaller segment of bowel uh, utilized. Um, and then in terms of troubleshooting uh, with urinary diversion, so it's important to make sure that the bowel is gonna reach the urethra. Um, if you're doing a studer, you can bring the point 12 centimeters from the distal isolated segment. If you can bring that to the pace of the penis, you're pretty well assured that you're able to get it, get it down into the pelvis. With a Houtman, you want to mark the most dependent portion of the uh, ilium and make sure that segment reaches the symphysis. Intraoperatively, you know, if you're having trouble, um, you want to loosen the retractor, straighten the table, take them out of flex, uh, remove a cushion if there is one. You may need to use a sponge stick to push up the perineum. So you can mobilize the cecum on the root of the mesentery to help you get extra length. You may use a discard segment, which has been described at the proximal portion, um, to improve the mobilization, um, as well as superficial peritoneal incisions, which you can see here, which may enable you to stretch the, stretch the bowel down. Uh, in terms of uh, management, um, I'll skip this. Um, and in terms of urinary diversion outcomes, you know, majority of patients do achieve uh, daytime continence, may take 12 to 18 months. Uh, night, nocturnal incontinence ten, tends to be more of a problem, uh, is higher rates of the studer neobladder relative to the Houtman uh, neobladder. Uh, in terms of complications, uh, hernia incontinence, uh, hypercontinence can occur between four and 25% is more common in females. Uh, ureteral strictures, similarly to incontinent diversions. Uh, nastomotic strictures are rare. Uh, fistulas, UTIs, pouch stones, um, and then as well as the metabolic complications that we talked about. So continent catheterizable channels, there's uh, several different uh, uh, versions. Uh, most commonly is an Indiana pouch or some modification of the Indiana pouch, which is the pen pen pouch or the Miami and Florida pouches, the ileal uh, continent catheterizable channel, the Coke pouch uh, uh, is not as commonly used. 
Um, so this is the initial description of the Indiana pouch. This is based on Gilchrist's original description of using the right colon for a, di a diversion, but he didn't uh, detubularize the segment. So there were issues with high pressure and incontinence. Um, so this relies on um, uh, mobile using the right colon, typically up to the hepatic flexure, about 20, 20 to 5 to 30 centimeters of the right colon and 10 centimeters of the ileum. Um, and then uh, opening it up on the antimesenteric side and clamshelling it close, and then using a tapered ileal limb with a reinforced ileal sequel valve as the continence mechanism. Um, and here's just showing the incision. You, you can do an, then you do an ileal colic anastomosis, similar to your ileal, ileal anastomosis. Staple reduce this ileal limb as a catheterizable channel, and then can put some uh, limbered sutures at the ileal sequel valve to reinforce. You want to test the continence mechanism, uh, you know, before bringing it, uh, before bringing up this limb to make sure that it is going to be continent, and also test catheterization and test it multiple times uh, before and at, you know, before pulling it up through the abdominal wall as well as uh, after after pulling it up to make sure that the catheter passes easily. Because if you can't catheterize it intraoperatively, the patient's not going to be able to catheterize it themselves. Um, and then in terms of outcomes, um, the, uh, so late complications, um, uh, you can get stomal stenosis, um, peristomal hernias as well in the, in the catheterizable channels, pouch stones, um, gallstones, uh, metabolic acidosis, and renal dysfunction, as well as you know, incontinence of your intended to be a continent diversion. Um, and this can be failure of the continence mechanism or related to contractions of the pouch. So in terms of long-term complications of urinary diversion uh, in children, they can have impaired growth and development, uh, you know, recurrent infections they may develop stones, not only stones within the pouch as a result of, you know, if it's a continent diversion with mucus, you retain mucus, but also because of uh, um, chronic acidosis, hypocitraturia, and so they may, uh, as well as uh, uh, bacterial colonization, that may result in uh, stones, both kidney stones as well as in the pouch. Um, osteomalacia may occur as a result of chronic acidosis um, where the bone releases calcium so you want to treat the acidosis as well as supplement calcium and vitamin D in these patients um, as well as you know they may have vitamin D deficiency as well. Um, secondary malignancies typically occur late this was most commonly seen with ureter SIGs um, uh, which is why they've largely been abandoned um, it was interestingly found that uh, patients who had the urothelium from the ureter that was left in contact um, at uh, undiversion, that those patients were at higher risk, even if they were defunctionalized. So it's important to remove the actual anastomosis and the uh, piece of bowel that it's connected with um, to uh, prevent uh, mal uh, malignant transformation. Um, uh, typically, you know, the secondary malignancies within the pouch are rare, 0.2%, um, most commonly, uh, as I said, in the ureter or SIGs. Um, uh, you know, after five years or so, you may consider endoscopic evaluations, especially with right colon pouches, um, and looking in to make sure. Uh, quality of life uh, varies significantly. Uh, these are several different instruments that have been used. Um, to assess quality of life and different urinary diversions. Um, 
and typically, you know, this is an individualized, uh, uh, individualized decision. And so the quality of life really depends on a variety of factors, you know, that's specific to that specific patient. And it's hard to compare, you know, one diversion, uh, a patient who gets one diversion, uh, since they don't have, multi, you know, don't have multiple diversions to experience. Uh, in terms of follow-up, uh, these patients will be followed long-term. Oftentimes, they'll get imaging if this is a bladder cancer patient. Um, you want to surveil their upper tracts uh, with CT or renal ultrasounds, pouchogram or lubrograms if you're assessing for reflux or stricture. Uh, if they have new hematuria um, with an orthotopic neobladder, uh, important to do a cystoscopy to make sure there's no urethral recurrence. Um, and these patients need lifelong follow-up. Um, so the take home, uh, you know your anatomy and the surgical techniques. Uh, you want informed discussions with your patients and individualized surgical plans um, with a multitude of con uh, considerations to make. Uh, it's important to know the metabolic consequences, which are highly testable, recognize the complications and the management. Um, and even if you don't perform these surgeries, you're gonna see these patients on call or in follow up and they'll certainly be on your boards. So with that, thank you very much. Sorry for the whirlwind tour of urinary diversions. I'm happy to answer any, uh, any questions that you guys have here. Okay, I'm uh, looking at the Q&A. Um, so someone asked uh, the difference between intracorporeal and extracorporeal uh, urinary diversions. So what this means is that, uh, that you don't undock the robot to create your urinary diversion. So you, you continue to harvest the bowel, do your reanastomosis of the, the intestines, whatever diversion you're using, do your ureteral anastomoses. And then if it's a neobladder, do your uh, a, a vesicle, urethral anastomosis, all with the robot there. An extracorporeal diversion um, is where, you know, after doing the cystectomy, if this is a bladder cancer patient, uh, you would make a little mini laparotomy incision and then do all your intestinal work and your anastomosis, um, uh, you know, uh, in the typical fashion, just through a smaller, smaller incision um, is the difference between the two. Uh, per, um, does performance, so nerve sparing, uh, yeah, it has been shown, uh, nerve sparing, the question is whether or not nerve sparing results in improved nocturnal incontinence in patients. Um, uh, I think, yes, that it has, uh, and improved also hypercontinence, uh, less rates of hypercontinence when you preserve, um, when you preserve the nerves. Uh, I think some of the nocturnal uh, incontinence is related to how quickly and how easily the bowel is able to accommodate volume, um, where, you know, with the Houtman neobladder, you tend to have a higher volume at the outset um, uh, compared to a suitor. Where you, and, you know, obviously you have a, uh, your reflex arc is not the same as with your native bladder and preventing leakage at night. So your sphincter doesn't necessarily communicate the same way it does with your native bladder as it does with an uh, orthotopic neobladder. Um, okay, this, uh, so this is a medical student uh, asking, so th these procedures, I would say it's very, the question is uh, how much are these procedures done in residency versus fellowship? Um, I would say it's variable depending on where you train. I mean, you should have, I mean, every residency is going to have some exposure to uh, urinary diversions and intestinal work. I mean, it's a requirement uh, to do, you know, so many cystectomies, I think five cystectomies 
uh, that you have to participate in, in during residency. Uh, depending on your center, you may have more or less exposure to the continent diversions, the Indiana pouches and orthotopic diversions. Um, in some places that, you know, may push to, you you know, may do them more frequently. Um, you know, where I trained uh, in Houston at MD Anderson, I mean, I would say a majority of our cases were conduits, uh, maybe 80% conduits, 20% continent diversions, whereas a center like USC, uh, does 70 percent uh, continent uh, type diversions. Uh, in terms of pouch stones, I would say uh, depends on whether or not this is an orthotopic neobladder or a Indiana pouch. The question is how do you manage the pouch stones and also the size of the stones. Certainly if you're doing an Indiana pouch and you have big stones, you don't want to use the catheterizable limb, the efferent limb, to uh, to do lithotripsy through because you may disrupt the continence mechanism. So typically you'll do a percutaneous access through a separate site um, with your Indiana pouch and do like you're doing a PCNL, but doing it through the uh, abdominal wall directly into the pouch to manage the stones. Um, there's another question, how does a hydronephrosis after ileal conduit in the setting of UTI um, or AKI necessitate stent versus PCN placement, even if hydro is likely uh, secondary to reflux. So I'd say um, to answer that, it's largely dependent on the clinical scenario and kind of your imaging findings at baseline, usually on a scan. Uh, I mean, if, if you can see that there is obstruction, if there's a stone, you know, sometimes they'll have stones. Um, if they have delayed imaging, you may, you may see a stricture. Um, um, so in that case, you, you know, may point you toward doing some sort of drainage of the upper tracts versus, you know, sitting on it, treating the infection with antibiotics. So I'd say it largely depends on the scenario, what the imaging looks like. Um, and, you know, certainly someone who's acutely infected uh, and is sick, you're not going to want to do a lupogram on that patient because it may exacerbate and worsen their sepsis. Um, so if there's any question, you know, they're a uh, little down and they're super sick, there's little downside uh, placing a nephrostomy tube if, you know, you're uncertain as to, you know, if they're obstructed or not. In terms of, uh, there's another question, how long do I keep uh, ureteral stents after a conduit versus a neobladder? Um, and how do you manage anastomotic leaks? Um, so uh, for ileal conduit, typically we'll leave the stents in for five days. Um, uh, I would say a baseline. All these patients also have JP drains, so uh, some of that's dependent also on the, the clinical scenario. If someone uh, with irradiated uh, patients, you may consider keeping the stents in a little bit longer, especially if you're worried about it intraoperatively and worried about the health of the ureter. Um, but I would say average is about five days. Check a JP creatinine before you remove the stents um, in, in those patients. With neobladders, uh, leave them in you know, seven, somewhere between seven and 10 days. Similarly, make sure there's not a urine leak um, before you uh, remove the stents. Uh, with the neobladder, I, I didn't get to it just in the interest of time, but some people will actually tie the stents to the catheter in the neobladder. And so when the catheter comes out, the stents come out. Um, so they may wait two to three weeks and do a cystogram um, and then prove that the uh, 
prove that the neobladder is healed, and then at that time the catheter comes out, as do the stents. Other people will bring the stents out through a separate incision and through a separate side on the abdomen to remove them independent of the catheter. Um, in terms of managing, managing leaks, uh, assuming that the stents are in, you continue to keep your drains, uh, continue to keep the stents in place and you know, maximally drain everything. Um, and sit on uh, and sit on them is, is largely the answer. Um, if there's a big leak, uh, an intraperitoneal leak, and there's a big urinoma, you know, in those cases you may consider placing a nephrostomy tube, uh, you know, another drain in the abdomen. Um, you know, very rarely do you have to go back uh, and do and explore some, re-explore someone for an anastomotic leak. Typically, these will heal. You know, with further drainage, continued stent. Uh, and maximum, maximal diversion. Um, and then, um, so I'm about uh, out of time, but quickly, uh, thoughts on concurrent bladder neck closure. Um, I would say it depends on the case. Um, if you're doing an augment um, with a bladder neck closure, I mean, that's commonly done in the pediatric world in the, you know, um, for, you know, neurogenic bladder, um, kind of thing, um, but it, uh, or extrophy epispadius. Um, but in the adult ward, bladder neck closures are a little more tenuous. Would not do that in a radiated patient. Um, and, um, but it can be done. Uh, it's, it's easier to be, easier to do in females in general than it is in males. You may have to do a prostatectomy in males. It also depends on where the ureters are in relation uh, to the bladder neck. Um, if they're super close, you may need to stent the ureters or do a re-implant, so it may, may be more complicated. Um, so uh, with that, uh, thank you guys very much. Uh, I'm happy to answer any other questions. Um, uh, sorry, I forgot to put my email up, but my email is cbenson2 at tulane.edu. If you guys have any other questions, happy to answer uh, any of them. Again, thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.